Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're talking about the future of mental health assessment. We've touched on this idea a couple of times here in the lab, but today we're going to devote a whole episode to what is still somehow considered by many to be a a pretty radical topic. You see, in America alone, according to the Boston University School of Public Health, rates of depression pre-pandemic were hovering around 8.5%. Not bad, not great sounds manageable. But since COVID upended society as we know it, that number has ultimately quadrupled to 32.8%. I'm reluctant to say we are facing a mental health crisis only because, as I've said many times, I am not an expert on anything. But even the lamest of laymen can see we're experiencing some kind of mental health situation, right? And let's be honest, it's not as though we all thought going into 2020, whatever mental health systems we had in place were humming along beautifully. We're talking about a famously underfunded, outdated, somewhat broken system that is now facing an unprecedented increase in demand. And and while I admittedly have not done the research to confirm the following suspicion, it feels like a really safe assumption that this problem is not limited to the U.S., It was a global pandemic after all. Uh, So you couple all that, we got an existing system reliant on subjective questionnaires prone to bias, clinicians already overworked with admin tasks limiting their time with patients, and, and the fact that there are no standardized ways to monitor patients at home, things could look a little grim. So why begin today's episode with a reminder of this major bummer of a situation that we have on our hands? Because maybe, just maybe, it's not that grim after all. Uh, Maybe there are people out there actively trying to put some good back into the world and build tools that will not replace the countless brilliant, dedicated, selfless mental health professionals out there, but rather tools that will close the gap, uh, help catch those that slip through the cracks, enable those working in the field to detect things they might have missed or, or may not have been able to see in the first place. And maybe those tools are specially created video games. Uh, Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? So why would any of that be considered radical? Well, you know how it is. New technology-driven solutions and AI-based systems get a bad rap. I myself am guilty of invoking the rather tired but popular refrain bemoaning our inevitable robot overlord apocalypse. It's true. Uh, I love to bring it up. It's funny to me. Uh, But unprecedented times call for unconventional measures, which inevitably ruffles some feathers, rallies some skeptics. But hey, when we get a guest in here, who has identified a major systemic issue that they think they can actually fix using AI or modern technology, I get really excited and I want to talk to them. Uh, So what does the future of mental health assessment look like? Uh, Before we can get into that, we got to bring on my co-host and reluctant spiritual guide. Uh, Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, how are you doing today, buddy? You doing all right? Uh, I mean, I was feeling good, but after that intro, I kind of feel, <laughs> feel a little down, but I, I, I'm still hopeful. I'm still hopeful. I can say that. You much. and billions of others, my friend, are feeling a little <laughs> down right now. I'm in that boat as well. But you know what? Last week, our guest said he was pleased to be here. So that's the bar for me, Alan. I need you pleased or above if you can do that. <laughs> All right. So try to get there. It's Sounds after good. 12 <laughs> on the East Coast. So. It's true. I've, waken, I've woken up. <laughs> All right. As for today's guest, they have a PhD and postdoc in cognitive neuroscience and linguistics. 
linguistics from University College London. Uh, for over 11 years, they've worked with various populations, both healthy people and patients with cognitive disorders, using language as a marker for their cognition. Uh, they are CEO and co-founder of Themia, an AI startup using video games based on neuropsychology alongside analysis of facial microexpressions and, and speech to quickly accurately and objectively assess and monitor mental health, starting with depression. When I say we need unconventional measures, this is precisely the 21st century kind of stuff I'm talking about. Please welcome to the show, CEO and co-founder of Themia, the great Amelia Mullenpakis is here. Amelia, thank you so much for being on our show. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was such a lovely intro. <laughs> thank you. I'm afraid to let you down now. <laughs> well, I thought after Alan told me how much I bummed him out, I had to bring the energy up a little bit to bring you on. I didn't want to bum you out as well. <laughs> no, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. We're so excited to have you. Um, uh, before we jump in, I was looking at uh, your LinkedIn and Comey. Well, when it's a show, it's called research. If I didn't have this, I was stalking you. Um, but I was doing research and I was going through your LinkedIn and I saw you posted a cool video uh, a couple of months ago. You were at Collision in Toronto uh, yes. and you gave the keynote speech. That looked pretty amazing. What was that like? It looked like it went great. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was uh, both my first time on stage and also in front of thousands of people uh i didn't really? know yes and oh, it was very it was very interesting it. yeah opened the conference fantastic they didn't tell me how to get off the stage so i just got out there delivered my speech and i'm like okay great now turn around i don't know where i'm going but yeah it was super cool it was it was really great and uh yeah such an amazing experience and actually I thought it was going to be terrifying. It was really enjoyable because you don't see anything. It's all black. So yeah. yeah, it was great. Yeah. The lights, they, they help kind of wash it out. You don't have to exactly. see like, yeah. all the faces in there staring at you. Yeah. That was it was so, so enjoyable. Yeah. That's outstanding. I can't believe that was your first one. You're natural. You look so great up there. It was wonderful. <laughs> I thought you did <laughs> a million so of these at that point. When I watched, I was like, oh, look at her. No, That's fantastic. I've done like, I've done like podcasts, TV, different things, but nothing really on stage that wasn't me lecturing or, or yeah. something like that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And especially that there's a lot of people there. It was a big room. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very cool. Well, well done. Very nice to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Alan, have you done anything cool since I've seen you last like that? Or no, I think Amelia's got you beat. I think. Yeah, no, not really. Yeah, yeah I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, let's jump into it. Before we start talking nuts and bolts and get deep into how all this stuff works, if it's okay, uh, for those unaware of the circumstances that inspired you to set out on this path, would you mind sharing just the, the moment that stands out as sort of the, uh, the impetus behind this whole endeavor for you? That'd be awesome to, to share if you could, Amelia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as, as you very kindly mentioned, I was an academic before founding Themia. And to be honest, I didn't really ever think I was going to found a company or go into startup. Um, if anything, I would probably be a CSO, not a CEO. But um, all of that changed when, uh, while I was doing my postdoc, my best friend uh, developed depression while I was researching depression. Hmm. And I kind of saw her try to get help. And because mm. she was also an academic, it's super common in academia to have depression. Unfortunately, it, it's super common as well as different anxiety disorders. And so none of us really thought much of it. Yeah. So um, initially she tried to get help in the NHS, which is our, our public system here in the UK. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really help her very much. And she started to get worse. And so eventually she ended up seeing a psychiatrist privately. And still... Unfortunately, he didn't see how bad her condition was. And then unfortunately, just two days later, she ended up trying to take her own life. Oh. And when that happened, uh, we were meant to be meeting up that day and she didn't show up. So I went to her house and uh, unfortunately or fortunately, 
I found her. Um, The fortunate part is that it didn't end how it may have done Mm -hmm. and how it does for so many other people. But the unfortunate part was that this had to happen at all in the first place, seeing as she had actually just seen a psychiatrist. And, um, you know, obviously that's super shocking, uh, super, you know, uh, very just uncomfortable. um, Yeah situation to be in. Mm -hmm. And when I finally got over that, I just couldn't get my head around how her psychiatrist had missed this. Like, surely this is what they're trained to do. You do not miss such serious cases. And so I ended up talking to him after uh, quite a while. And I spoke to a number of other psychiatrists in the UK, um, then back home in Greece and the rest of Europe, uh, a couple in the US as well. And what uh, they all just came back with and what they were telling me was uh, just really shocking to me. Like they basically said, well, at the end of the day, as psychiatrists, we're, cha- we're trained to observe, like we can see body language, we can see how people are speaking, but all we have as tools are questions. So mm. if the other person doesn't want to comply or they can't comply, they can't express themselves properly. And that's kind of what happened with my friend for various reasons, then there's only so much they can do. Yeah, And so um, that's how so many people end up slipping through the net. And yeah, it's to no fault at all of any of the mental health practitioners. It's just the tools they have, I believe, could be made so much better. Like they have not, like some of these questions that they ask literally have not been changed since World War I. They ask some of the same questions they've been asking for a hundred years. It really is insane when you think about all the amazing, amazing progress you have in physical health in the past 100 years alone, like we've had, you know, the advent of blood pressure cuffs, thermometers, blood tests, urine tests, mammograms, x-rays, everything. And in psychiatry, we just have questions. So, yeah. you know, what's happening? And um, Amazing. that kind of sparked it. And I just immediately quit my role and uh, thought I need to, to do something about this, really. It's first of all, thank you for sharing that because that's a, a personal experience and that's not an easy thing. And, uh, and and I thank you for 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 opening up and sharing that story with us. I uh, it, it's so difficult when you're in that position because yeah, the the first reaction is well, well, not just how do we miss this? What what more could we have done when this happens for people that maybe aren't even seeing a psychiatrist? You, well, you go in your head. Well, at least if I if I just push them to talk to somebody, it's like so. What do you do when you were taking all those steps, right? And this. St- still seems to be an inevitable situation that you have to confront and, and, and kind of deal with. A lot of people will go through something like that and get very angry, right? Uh, and I'm sure you were at first as well. I'm sure everybody might have been. But you did something not a lot of people do in that position is you saw an opportunity to make things better. And, and I just wonder, what was it that pushed you in that direction? Is that something you've always, is that a, a, a thing you've always had as a person? Or is there something about this scenario that pushed you to say, I'm going to take this energy and I'm going to, I'm going to try to improve these things. I, I have to, what, what made you do that? Well, I think as a person, I actually tend to be like that a lot. I'm yeah. very straightforward and in, in my friendships and in kind of relationships and everything, I'm always like super upfront and I say exactly what I think and I kind of expect everybody to do that with me. Yeah. And this seemed like such a natural thing. I was just just assuming that other people like myself who'd done like all this research, it, it wasn't really, you know, it's not that it was something that had just been discovered two, three years ago. It's some of this research has been around 20, 25 years. So I just naturally assumed other people had kind of done that straightforward thing, which was to to try and bridge the gap. Yeah. And when I saw that you know, 
some had tried, but not really done it so successfully. I thought, well, uh, if people like me don't do this, then, you know, it's my fault in a way. Like mm. if other people have to go through what my friend did and I'm not doing something when I can, then I'm actually liable for that in my head. And so I was like, well, if I don't try it, if I don't do this, then I will always have that as a regret because I just would hate to have anyone else experience what I did and what my friend did. And it's just so incredibly common, but people don't talk about it. Um, and I think, yeah, both of those things, actually, not just solving the problem, but actually talking yeah. about it, I think is just so important. And if nothing else, I want that to come of Themia, essentially, that more and more people are talking about this and yeah. trying to solve it. Wow. Well, first of all, kudos to you for that level of self-awareness and and taking ownership of such a big uh, issue that affects so many people. It's you're, you're right. People like you, if, if you don't do it, who will? Right. And you are doing it. And I'm grateful for people like you in the world. So thank you. Before we even get any deeper, in this, I'm just I really am. <laughs> I'm trying. Just like, yeah, I'm you're, trying. You, you are. And God bless you for it, man. All right. So let's let's we'll get like I said, we're going to keep getting deeper and deeper. Let's stay a little bit on the surface for a second. Talk to me a little bit, if you can, about uh, the focus on assessment versus treatment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why, why was that the path you guys went down? Was that always the path Did, in the early days? Were you still figuring out, are we going to be assessment? Are we going to focus on treatment? Or did you know right away, this is where the hole is. This is the gap. That's what we need to help them with. I think to begin with, probably because of um, the story with my friend, I realized that there was a, a massive gap in assessment mm -hmm. and in monitoring. Uh, not so much in the beginning with, with treatment. I think mm -hmm. the more we dug into the problem and the system and talking to more psychiatrists, the more we realized that actually there is a systemic problem, not just in assessing, but finding the right treatment for depression. I mean, the stats are pretty bleak. It, yeah. Like on average, it can take something like 10 years of trial and error to land on the right treatment for depression. So even if you're diagnosed, you know, it's, it's a long and hard process. And so there, there is really that big question. Do you go to help treatment or you, do you go to, to help with assessment? Um, for me, the assessment and monitoring part was super crucial. Um, I think just as a, as a starting point, so you don't have people slipping through the net. Sure, it can take a, a long time to get to the right treatment, but also if you don't just know that somebody needs treatment, then, you know, uh, I think that's kind of like step one. Also, because um, a lot of the research I did was in distinguishing between um, people with and without some type of cognitive disorder or mental health issue, rather than um, helping the treatment per se. Now, there are a lot of uh, ways you can actually also embed treatment into video games, but I think that's kind of like a, a slightly different angle on it. For me, it just made sense to start with the assessment, but there are so many other people doing like treatment through video games, which is amazing. We can get into that. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. that was the thing that I was also very curious about. And we very naturally go there is, is making the leap from uh, here's the problem we have to solve to, all right, well, let's, let's use video games. Like there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in between there. Uh, yeah. And so I'm curious, when did AI and gaming start to present themselves to you as the solution worth chasing? Like this, this is the way to go. Yeah, I think it was quite, it was gradual, but also quite natural again, like to do a lot with my own nature and character and also that of my friend who went through this and my co-founder. So um, I like in terms of the, in terms of the data, let's say, let's start with that. So um, what Themia does, which is unique, there are a lot of other companies out there looking at voice or looking at face in different ways as, you know, um, areas that you can look at features for depression or ADHD or different things. Um, 
So I've always been very much of the opinion that the more data you have, the better. Mm -hmm. And so my focus was speech always. So how somebody sounds and what they're uh, what they're saying as well. Um, but I realized that there's a massive amount of um, research that's been done into facial uh, emotion recognition. That was not my specialty, but I knew that if we could actually combine it, there's so much more that we can get from that combination rather than uh, having things alone. The other thing was that whenever we were doing speech um, experiments uh, during my PhD, during my postdoc, uh, you would always have other experiments running alongside that would track different other behaviors because this is how you get a more broad kind of and um, global overview of somebody's cognitive you know, way of thinking, uh, cognitive patterns. And so the more uh, you can pinpoint that pattern, the more you're able to distinguish whether someone may or may not have depression or something else. Mm -hmm. um, so then you have, okay, we need to combine these three things, behavior, you know, uh, facial analyses and speech analysis. How do we get the data from someone who's depressed? And that's where um, my friend's love of gaming came into this. So oh, cool. even when she was really, really bad, really dark. She always found comfort in video games. And that's actually something that I myself also find comfort in. I do get stressed. I do get anxious. And video games are a way of kind of taking you out of your world into another world that you have control of. And that has a very clear set of winning and losing rules, which mm -hmm. is not always the same for life. And I did a lot of research and I realized that many people are like that, not just me. And um, at the end of the day, a video game really is just an engaging interface that can be built around any core that you like. So why yeah. not build it around a core of scientifically validated experiments? Yeah. And so we thought, okay, let's give it a go. Right. And, uh, so I want to break open and dig into the, the built around the scientific experiments in a little bit, but there's something I can't help but draw a parallel. So it, you and, and Alan here are doing or have done both very different and very similar things. Alan, and keep me honest here, because again, I'm talking about your work and I hope I have understood it correctly over all these episodes. But if I recall correctly, what you guys did was you uh, a huge study and you would show footage or, or or photos or videos, and then you would then teach the AI by reading those reactions that people had. And you were trying, Alan, to get specific reactions to learn about them. This is what awe looks like. This is what horror looks like. Am I right so far? That was kind of what you guys were doing, yes or no? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we faced kind of a similar issue or we saw a similar issue in the literature, which is that when you're talking about people's subjective experiences, right now it's extremely abstract, right? And uh, people don't look at as much at objective prop, uh, proxies. And that's true generally for emotion and it's true for mood and it's true for all these other symptoms of depression and, uh, you know, they even ask them questions about, you know, how fast are you speaking normally? Do you find that some people are speaking, uh, that you speak more slowly and people recognize or that your sleep isn't good? Even things that, you know, you could easily deploy objective measures of right now yeah. in psychiatry. They just don't, they aren't used. Um, but then when you talk about, you know, some of the questions about how often do you experience negative emotions? I mean, that's really tough for people to answer that. Um, and it's just something that's going to differ from person to person. What do I think of as really negative uh, versus somebody else who may have lived through more negative experiences in their life? We might be on different scales. So it's a bit like, you know, you want to identify this thing, like, like say you want to identify like an animal 
Uh, but all you have is people's testimony from having seen the animal like run by and they're like, this is kind of what it was like. And you don't know if different people are describing the same animal, right? So you kind of want to be there when this experience is happening. You want to kind of see the objective proxies. And that, so we kind of had the same aim there. For me, so, it was just like in the basic emotion literature. So it's like, let's just measure what it looks like when somebody's experiencing emotion. And um, and I love that animal. Uh, <laughs> a meta-analogy example? Whatever. I, I'm obviously not the smart one on the show. Uh, <laughs> the thing you said about animals, I really liked. Um, but what, what I was, what, what my, the dots my brain is connected is I was thinking of, Alan, the way you guys set up your experiments to, to, to elicit a specific response and measure it and understand it and catalog it and then build that data set to then use in situations kind of like what Amelia's looking at, where now they're exposing a, a patient to uh, the game or whatever, and then analyzing their reaction to that. And the big difference that my brain was like, well, Alan's trying to get them to feel a certain way, but Amelia's trying to just see how they're feeling. And so it's like, you know, it's, it, it, I started thinking like, okay, so you know what to show them, Alan. I want to see somebody scared. Here's a scary image. Amelia, you just want to know a person like what what's going on. So how do you construct an experience that doesn't cloud that, right? That gets you to what's happening inside as opposed to an experience that makes them feel a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I, I did want to say that um, the work we do builds very heavily on the work that people like Alan have done in the past. So Alan basically finds ways to measure um, these emotions after eliciting them, we then go and look at models like that and say, okay, you know what this looks like. We need this because it feeds into mood. It feeds into anxiety. It feeds into all these other issues. We need to be able to recognize it when it's happening. Um, but then, yeah, there is the, the the thorny prickly subject of how do you, A, um, I guess this is inherent in any experiment, create an experiment that doesn't, you know, through accident or, you know, fault in the design actually elicit a different emotion, like actually taint the whole yeah. experience. And then taking that even a step further, how do you gamify that without actually, um, you know, changing or um, uh, uh, creating issue with the protocol itself? Uh, so I guess to, to start with, well, we're not um, inventing the wheel, reinventing the wheel, essentially, we are building on uh, most of the protocols we started with have been validated in the past 20, 30, sometimes 40 years in neuropsychology. So we know that these experiments, however biased or, or whatever they might be, in essence, you, if you control for different confounding variables like age, gender, etc., you have a pattern that you're looking for that signifies depression. Um, mm. So we went with that essentially we're not going to try and prove that again for everyone we we kind of took that as a given and it's also a lot that that i've worked on in the past so we know we had a good starting point um and then what we did is we we kind of built simple games around that that didn't alter the core of the protocol you need to understand the protocol really really well um and make sure that all of the 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 elements in your game are matching that protocol uh, but you're making it nicer. And so then we compared the first one with the second one to see if we're getting the same patterns and we were. And so that's kind of how you, you iterate on it. You don't just go, okay, 
boring scientific experiment, boom, call of duty. You don't just do that kind of thing. <laughs> you yeah. have to go in, in small steps. It's a but journey. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, the pattern of depression that you guys are looking for. And that was, and Alan, I know you could answer this question as well. So I'm curious to hear from both. What what are the cues of depression? You know, how, how do you, and how do you determine those? And, and how widely understood are they? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm sure Alan has uh, probably a much better overview of the um, emotional literature through through facial expressions. I'll focus perhaps instead on, on my specialty, which is speech. So um, there are actually across all those three, like speech, face and, and behavior, there are thousands of little tiny features that you can look at that when you put them all together, create that pattern. No one feature for us on its own could tell us whether there's somebody has depression or not. But to give you some examples, um, when someone, well, uh, we look for two different things. Like we look for um, cognitive patterns that are depression traits. So they're always there. Um, whether someone is going through an experience or a, a low mood or not, um, they will always be there. There are differences in cognitive behavior that have to do with how this person's um, brain is working differently, the person with depression. And then there's depression states. And these are cognitive patterns that are there when you're going through a low mood. So uh, an example, let's say, of a cognitive, um, sorry, not cognitive, a depression state trait. Um, sorry, let me do that again. Uh, <laughs> an example of a, of a, a depressive um, state feature in speech is um, surprisingly the number of personal pronouns that you, you use. Hmm. So um, when you are going through a, a low um, episode, the number of personal pronouns you use goes up. So first person pronouns like I, we, I believe, I think, I see um, huh. in how you're describing images and how you're interacting with someone else is actually significantly higher than someone without depression. Um, now that alone can't tell you, but when you combine it with say, you know, uh, how your voice breaks, that's also a significant indicator of uh, a, a low mood, essentially. There's lots of tiny little things like that that all together create a pattern. And as you can see, probably, I mean, the personal pronoun one, people could could look up, but if you actually combine all these things and look at all of them, it's practically impossible to predict if you're trying to game the system or you're trying to, you know, show someone that you're depressed, it would be almost impossible to, to actually get that pattern right. Hmm. Interesting. That and Alan, I'm going to come back to you in a second because I want to hear some more about the the cues of depression. But one of the things I was thinking of, you say it'd be impossible to game the system, is just like the difference in, in between a patient seeking help and, and and willingly engaging in this experiment versus someone who maybe is in denial or doesn't even realize they're depressed, and 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 sort of how the the game and the readouts respond to those two different types of patients. So you're saying that even if someone tried to to mask it or or pretend one way or another we're getting pretty good at sort of seeing through that facade is that is that a, a appropriate interpretation there yes um although they may be cool good. yeah <laughs> that is the appropriate That's interpretation awesome. yes yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just oh, yeah. that's mind blowing. That's such an yes. amazing thing. Um, you were you were saying something probably way more valuable and smart, and I cut you off with my reaction. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say that um, that is, I think, the magic of what yeah. people like Alan and so many other researchers are doing right now, which is essentially trying to find. Mm a complex pattern that is mm -hmm. impossible to guess and to game because ultimately 
you shouldn't have to rely on a person's subjective opinion or or anything about whether or not they have a particular disorder. Like the thing I always try to to equate this to is, well, if you had like type one diabetes or something, is there any way you could possibly, well, maybe you could gain like <laughs> urine and blood tests and different things like that, but you shouldn't, like there, there's loads of different things you can look at to pinpoint yeah. it. We should have the same in depression and, yeah. you know, you should be able to get straight through to the point. For sure. Alan, what we're talking about those things that we can't fake or, or, or can't game, you know, we've heard speech and things of that nature. What, what are some of the other cues that, that you're familiar with that would indicate depression? I mean, from talking to psychiatrists, they rest very strongly on nonverbal behavior. And that's why an in-person visit is very different than like chatting on an app, right? Uh, <laughs> the, the challenge is, can you take these kind of subjective assessments that psychiatrists make regularly. And it is kind of subjective. Like they administer tests, they administer basically surveys. And these are a lot of these questions, as I was saying, are subjective. Um, but then at the end of the day, you know, the psychiatrist has to make a diagnosis. And oftentimes mm -hmm. it, if you talk to psychiatrists, they're like, well, you know, I just could tell. <laughs> I could tell this person was depressed. And then they kind of work backwards from there. And they also kind of have experience about what treatments have worked, what haven't worked in their previous patients. It's like, okay, I think this treatment's going to work for you. And then sometimes, and this is um, the kind of untold secret of what happens, is that the actual diagnosis is shaped a little bit by how they want to treat the patient because then they get the insurance to pay for it. Um, so, you know, right now it is a very subjective process, but the things that are being measured uh, when, by surveys, by questionnaires, like they, they reflect a kind of understanding of what depression really is or the different kinds of symptoms that are involved uh, that we've kind of built up over time. But, but they're not things that couldn't be measured objectively, you know, yeah. like flat affect, like not, not experiencing or expressing too many emotions. I mean, that, that almost by definition, that's something that could be measured objectively, right? You could measure how often people are expressing emotion, um, but it, it hasn't really been done um, to the extent it should be, although we are working with research labs now who are doing that. And one of the things they find is that, for example, when a therapist is talking to a patient, then the patient seems pretty normal. Um, but when the patient is responding to something on their own and they're not engaged in social interaction, then you really see the flat affect and you see less expression. Um, and so that's been really interesting to see. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of this is so new that, you know, I can't really, <laughs> I can't get yeah. inside that. <laughs> so I, I can't really uh, tell you exactly what the, the, particular patterns will be that will come out of this research. But I think in, in six months or a year, um, I'll probably have a better answer. Another, another problem with the subjective route, uh, I, I, we talked about gaming it a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's not always intentional. It's not like people go in and they're like, you know, I'm just going to try to get this prescription. Oftentimes what happens is you at some point tell somebody or they decide themselves that they're suffering from depression. And that's this thing that happens. Maybe they're in a bad mood when that happens at the time, sometime in their life. Right. And there's also a sort of idea that goes around that this is mostly due to their biology or at least partly due to their biology. And so they think, okay, I am a person with a biology that predisposes me to depression. And that really shaped your self image going forward. Um, and anytime you're asked questions about whether you're depressed, you're, you, you're now answering them from the vantage point of somebody who thinks they have a biological predisposition mm. to be depressed. And so all of these uh, questions that are asked from that, that point on, 
are subject to that confirmation bias. And it's kind of like, if, if bringing back the animal analogy, imagine like somebody told you, oh, that was Bigfoot, right? And then from <laughs> then on, you're like, oh, I think I saw Bigfoot today, right? right. It changes your whole idea of, of how you, you view yourself and these symptoms. Um, and that also reinforces the need, you know, even it's not just bad intent going in of gaming it. It's that you really need to kind of peel underneath these ideas that we instill in people about what these symptoms mean and who they are. Well, that, and I think back to one of the things I said in the introduction, which is it's a tool that's not just helping to to catch things that 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 we're missing, but also catch things we might not have seen. And that's the really exciting part. Uh, uh, you know, to me, there's a difference between uh, missing it because I'm busy and missing it because I didn't know I was looking for it kind of thing. And so there's a real excitement uh, there for me uh, in terms of how this can amplify the abilities of the mental health professionals that are out there. Uh, what has the general reception been like thus far? Are people e- eager to implement uh, Themia? Are you, are you battling skepticism and pushback? What's, what's some of the stuff you guys have been hearing out there getting this in the fields and seeing it work? What's that been like? Well, I think in some ways we've actually benefited a lot from the massive increase in telehealth mm. popularity from COVID. I'm not saying that we benefited from COVID in any way. That's not, <laughs> not it at all, but it has brought about an amazing um, acceptance of telehealth. So I think going out like two years ago with this idea was very, very different to what it would have been, say, two, three years ago before that, yeah. essentially. Um, and yeah, the response we've had thus far has been phenomenally positive. Sure, we do get some skeptics here and there, but they are way more far between, like few and far between than yeah. I thought they would be. Um, but it turns out that like psychiatrists, neuropsychologists, clinical psychologists, like secondary care practitioners are aware that there are gaps in the system. They are aware that a lot of things are subjective and they are missing people. The yeah. treatment doesn't always work. Um, the mere fact that, you know, when you're put on an antidepressant in the beginning, sometimes it can actually make you worse, depending on who you are and how you're responding to it. Sure. Um, yeah. They're very aware of that. And so I think it's also a question of how you position yourself also as a company ethically and everything. Um, because of my background and that of, of um, my co-founder and everyone in, in the company, we're very, very explicit about not trying to diagnose for the clinician or replace the clinician in any capacity, make the decision for them, anything like that. Um, we're there to provide objective metrics of symptoms mm-hmm. rather than the diagnosis itself. Yeah. How you you know, what you do with those symptoms and how you treat them there, that's up to you as a psychiatrist. I think that's really, really um, affected the reception, I would say. Awesome. Yeah. And I do want to get into uh, where, where the AI is doing some of the heavy lifting, because I think that's a very important part. It's, it's, it's not a diagnosis. You guys are helping the people that make the diagnoses see all the data they can possibly see. Uh, but we're, we're almost a little over halfway through, and it's dawned on me that I have not once yet uh, allowed you an opportunity or explained to the audience exactly the process uh, uh, or what Themia looks like. I was going, I was reading your website. Uh, for those that want to follow along at home, it's uh, themia.com. 
A-I, that's T-H-Y-M-I-A dot A-I. And so you can go ahead and check that out as we maybe get into this next part, but it does a great job of of saying like, we analyze video, audio, and we use video games to make assessments and sort of that. But just real quick, like what does that look like from the patient's perspective? I'm I'm seeing my mental health professional, I'm seeing my psychiatrist, whoever, my psychologist, and then I leave the the session and then what happens? How, How does it work? Yeah. So, um, by the way, very, very outdated website, just to put it out there. There's a lot more people on the team than there's there. Um, but yeah, so the process is, um, it, it depends on which pathway your uh, clinician is following, but let's say it's a full pathway. Um, typically when we're working with a clinic, uh, the clinician would send a link essentially to their patient before the first appointment. And then the patient would receive um, like a set of what we call activities, um, but they're like basically video games. And uh, we get them to run through these. They're typically 10, 15 minutes long. And this allows us to get a baseline for the patient. So they play through, say, three, four video games. Each one is targeting a slightly different uh, set of symptoms And we're looking kind of like at the crossover of those. And we're gathering through some of them, we gather speech and video. Through others, we just gather like your behavior inside the game. Um, But that allows us to get a really good baseline. And so then they go, they see their clinician and uh, the clinician sees the results there and then on the screen. And then they decide what they're going to do. What happens then is um, the patient goes back home and we start to send them video games and things to do in between the different sessions so we can actually build up a much bigger, richer, better profile of them and see whether actually they're responding to treatment or not over time. So it is very much a longitudinal um, process. But uh, and again, like not saying that we can identify everything straight away, but it's kind of seeing how symptoms are progressing over time through the games. Yeah. And has there uh, been any sort of comparison between like the meth? I mean, there obviously there has to have been the methods that you guys are doing versus the decades old questionnaires. just in terms of like, uh, I'm sure on the face of it, well, this is ob- objectively this is more fun to do, but also just like uh, in terms of the useful data that the, the mental health professionals are getting as a result of this. Have you guys gotten a lot of feedback of like, this is so much better than when I would just send them uh, you know, 10 questions to answer or whatever. Like, what's that feedback been like? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, you know, the engagement aspect of it is, you know, fundamentally very, very different. Like you have, it is much, much more engaging to play a game, to come back yeah. to it, especially if you give them um, reasons to come back to it versus reasons to go and fill out another questionnaire. I would say that we also do offer the same questionnaires because, you know, we're not expecting clinicians to switch over to just using us overnight. A lot of them do still want to look, say, at the the patient health questionnaire that has nine questions, PHQ-9 or the GAD-7. We do those as well. But then we also offer the output of our activities. And we have been doing um, the exercise of benchmarking one against the other. Sure, we want to replace it, but it is helpful for clinicians to know, okay, from our point of view, this person would rate here on a PHQ-9. Yeah. Um, we have published um, some uh, research on that. We're making the models so much better as we go, but already it's kind of an idea that you can benchmark against this. That having been said, it is very, very difficult to find the ground truth. If you want to train your AI models, what exactly are you training them on? If you only yeah. have questionnaires, how do you train the model? And so that's a little bit more complicated. There's ways basically to triangulate. Um, there isn't a golden truth, but we try to find different other ways to get to, you know, yeah. this is depression, 
this symptom, this symptom, this symptom, severe, moderate, et cetera. Alan, I see you nodding. Is that is that a, a challenge that you've encountered before of this like how do you train the AI specifically? Is that is that something you can relate to? Yeah. Well, I mean, particularly for diagnosing mental illness, because the existing instruments that we have, like the PHQ-9, are fairly simplistic to begin with. And kind of you, you kind of want to be able to separate out um, different kinds of depression, for example. Also, by the way, the PHQ-9 um, is not what's used to diagnose depression, um, and it doesn't really completely line up with that. But it is scientifically what's used to measure depression most often in studies. Um, but even within the PHQ-9, which is a f- nine questions, right? It's not very, <laughs> not very expensive. I assumed as much. I- <laughs> <laughs> but you still, even just within those nine questions, there's pretty broad range of symptoms that are being explored. And you can start to separate some symptoms, like you can separate, for example, uh, more physical kinds of symptoms from more emotional kinds of symptoms. And it's mm-hmm. really different groups of people potentially who are experiencing those different symptoms. And so already, even just within that, you can start to s- divide things out. But then once you have these much more multifaceted objective proxies, right, that uh, facial expression, how people are speaking, all these things you can measure while they're playing this game, presumably a lot of cognitive stuff too. I mean, it's just so interesting what you could do, but you're left with the question of what is the ground truth that I actually can <laughs> use to just, to justify like what are the good groupings of all along all these dimensions of the patients. Uh, and, and that's, you know, a really thorny question. Um, but I think data, data will eventually answer it, but it's going to be difficult. You uh, you had mentioned when we were doing our brainstorm, Alan, and I don't even know if this is relevant to where we are in the conversation, but I promised you I'd tee you up if I remember to do it. So here we are. Uh, <laughs> how's that for a smooth segue? I, uh, <laughs> so you had mentioned the idea of, of, of sub-diagnoses, um, and I want to be careful because, again, we're talking about assessment, not necessarily diagnosing things, but it, it was this concept of like the different, uh, within depression itself, the different sub you're way more articulate and equipped to ask the question you thought of, but I just this is this is the clumsiest teeing up I've ever done for you. So if you wanna if you wanna save this with something, you go right ahead and jump in anytime. I mean, what we're we talking about, we you know the the there's this issue of kind of lumping a lot of different patients together. As I was just saying, there's a lot of different symptoms involved. People have different sets of symptoms, and then there's this smooth spectrum from depression to anxiety. Um, there's a substantial overlap in the drugs that are prescribed for the two conditions. Sometimes people prescribe anxiety drugs for depression, um, sometimes maybe vice versa. And uh, then you have antipsychotic medications that come in for bipolar and schizophrenia. And there's all of these you know, different symptoms. A lot of these disorders actually are correlated anyway. And so people will be diagnosed with multiple different disorders. Um, and there's a lot of then leeway to prescribe them a lot of different things. Sometimes people are taking lots of different medications, right? And, and so this idea that it's just about, you know, figuring out if they meet the threshold for some diagnosis and then assigning the treatment that goes with that diagnosis. I think that's something people are have, for a long time, people have been trying to move away from that, right? <laughs> like what you really want to know is um, let's take uh, all the symptoms that we can measure, all the different dimensions and try to predict what the most effective treatment will be. 
right? And not have to use necessarily diagnostic categories in that process. That would be the ideal, right? Um, but it's just, a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, so sub-diagnosis is one way. It's like, okay, let's divide up depression into different kinds, subtypes of depression. Some might be responsive to some drugs and other subtypes of depression might be responsive to other drugs or other treatments, not saying you should just prescribe drugs. Actually, <laughs> oftentimes therapy is better, um, but it's, you know, other kinds of treatments get more expensive, more inaccessible. You can do group therapy, which is a little cheaper. But anyway, there's all these different symptoms, treatments to choose from. And you want to predict what the efficacy is going to be for a specific person from their symptoms. So that's the goal, really. Um, and we're getting a lot closer to that if we can measure people's actual behaviors in everyday life, because that's really mm-hmm. where their symptoms reside, as opposed to just talking abstractly about them in a you know, short appointment that occurs at some arbitrary moment in their life when they might be in some arbitrary mood. And well, it sounds like the games that Themia has are getting us closer to that, right? Like as opposed to sitting down and filling out the the what was it the PRX ninety or no that's that, that was abs that was for abs I think filling uh, <laughs> 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 out that's the one yeah there it is. Uh, God, I swear I'm learning doing this show. I promise I am. Uh, but anyway, my point is by uh, making it a little more natural and a little more organic and a little more something they experience they may be comfortable with, we're getting closer to measuring in the everyday life. Um, is that are, is that something you guys, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Blue Sky and look to the future, but are, are you looking past video games? I know that's like your bread and butter and that's the thing you guys are doing right now, but I just wonder when you sit down and go, where are we in 15, 20 years? Do you talk about like what might be the next thing to, to keep sort of that non-invasive way of, of finding out just how, these, how people behave when, when we need to know it most? Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, before answering that, I just wanted to yeah. say, I'm, I'm so glad that um, Alan brought that up because that is in essence the very problem that that we're trying to tackle mm-hmm. essentially like we don't go for diagnoses not not just because it's a label but also because if you look at all the different symptoms that the phq9 is trying to get to but in general that um you know need to be there to be classed as having depression and you look at all the different combinations you can have in essence if you do the math you could have over 500,000 ways of being depressed. And odds are most of them need slightly different treatment approaches, just as Alan was saying. So whether you call it subdiagnoses or whether you call it clustering of symptoms and whether they're one diagnosis or multiple, really in essence, clinicians are coming to the realization that you need to treat the symptom rather than the diagnosis. And so that's feeding into how also our video games are working by trying to pinpoint all of those different symptoms. It also makes it a lot easier to go from depression to other um, disorders as well. Like we're, we're already expanding into ADHD and bipolar um, quite organically. But I think um, video games were always for us the medium to mm-hmm. gather the necessary data. But as I said, I am... Um, very much a believer that the more data you have, the better. So already we're looking at ways of bringing in things like data from wearable devices. Um, We have uh, really good partnerships that we're building with um, companies that do um, very nice commercial like wearable 
EEG headsets. Mm. And so if you get all of those other kind of objective inputs, um, you're able to validate some of the more physical symptoms. Let's say with EEG, it becomes a lot easier to validate fatigue measurement alongside, let's say, your sleep measurements that you're getting from your aura ring or from your Fitbit. And then you have the voice stuff that we do. If you combine it all, you get much closer to the ground truth, which is ultimately what we're trying to do um, for each of the symptoms, essentially. And, and just real quick, and I know you say if you do the math, and I'm sorry to get stuck on this one bit, 500,000 approximately, over 500,000 different, and those, oh, that, that's what you're looking for. Just, yes. And just for depression alone, that could be. Yes. That's wild. What is the threshold there of like of the 500,000, you've got six, so you're fine. But like you've got 200,000, like, or does it not work that way? Like, is there's got to be a point, right? Where like this guy's loaded with them. Right? Uh, I think it's, it's more kind of thinking like, okay, if we have a symptom that is fatigue, you can have mild fatigue, moderate, severe, etc. So it's, it's like, it's, kind of okay, scale. It's the, so it's, it's a combination the of the different ones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. For, then if for, you, sorry. No, no, no. I'm 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 sorry if I'm derailing us. I just if you so no, then no. if you've got like if you uh, so mild, medium, and then like major fatigue, so mm -hmm. that would be one of the five hundred thousand. Not oh you don't have all three of those. Yeah, I mean the uh, so, so basically, what um, the kind of the way we, you calculate the five hundred thousand is yeah. saying, okay, we have seven or eight kind of main symptoms, let's say, of mm -hmm. depression. Out of those, to be classed kind of by a psychiatrist as having a diagnosis of depression, depends where you are. UK, EU, US is slightly different, mm -hmm. but say you need two or three of those to be. Yeah. Um, mild or moderate to be classed as having depression. Um, if you think about that and you have seven or eight symptoms and then you play around with all the different possibilities, you kind of get to that um, insane number, which by yeah. the way, for context, I know it sounds insane as a number. If you think about schizophrenia, because there's so many complex symptoms that you might have, there's kind of like 40 different types of symptoms you could have from you know, hallucinations to paranoia to all those things. The number of combinations actually grows to seven trillion. There are seven trillion ways you could be schizophrenic. Uh, imagine trying to unpack that as a psychiatrist and treat it. It's so difficult. Well, that's yeah. got to be then, right? That's where the AI comes into play, right? Is that that's what's helping? Is just ingesting or processing or analyzing just all all of these variables and all that data. As the greatest mental health professional in the world can't possibly be looking for seven. What was it? Trillion? <laughs> like that? You know, to be aware. So. Is that is that what you guys are doing there? Is that the 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 big key? Is the AI? It's helping us process these mountains and mountains of data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's um, AI is is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal, as I'm sure Alan will will agree. I think the key thing though is to not just randomly throw data at a model, whether it's labeled well or not, and then just hope that it's going to predict something. I think it's super important that even if it's lowering a little bit, potentially the efficacy of, of the model, you do it. Basically, you have ethical AI. So that, what that means is you have handles to understand when the AI may be going wrong, and so you can correct for it. So there's so many ways in which AI is fantastic, but it also has so many very basic downfalls in that very easily it becomes very biased. So very naturally, you, you quite like almost always get gender bias, you know, ethnicity bias, accent bias, language bias, everything. Yeah. 
you need to be able to correct for that. Otherwise, you know, you're never going to actually be able to to help anyone. Well, and that's something I was thinking about because when I was watching that video on LinkedIn, it, it said it was like marking like sort of like coming over into North America, right? And it's just mm-hmm. like, what about the the geographical, the cultural bias? You know, aside from having to convert for metric, what else? <laughs> did- that was a terrible joke. I uh, thank you for laughing at that. But what, uh, what, what, what has that process been like? Is it all? It's you're not starting over as you enter a new territory. Of course, there's some overlap, but yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into preparing for that uh, and, and to be able to see it. What, what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, for us, basically, the way we we um, train our models is our poor participants, we ask them like so many hundreds of questions so that we can actually be able to control for variables such as, you know, where did you grow up? Where are you spending most of your time now? Do you speak multiple languages? You know, up until the age of nine, did you speak one, two, three, four languages at home? What languages were they? All of these could affect the, you know, not just your speech, but the output and the outcomes in the experiment itself. This is what you do in a lab anyway. Any neuroscience study, you have to control for dozens of variables, um, from handedness to, you know, um, where you grew up to language to um, ethnicity, all those things you control for anyway. And it's no different with themia. We do the exact same thing. But what we do is on a massive scale. So say we're targeting the UK, we gather thousands of participants from different areas of the UK to make sure we're covering the whole population. And then that's what we use to train the model. The moment you go to North America, you have to kind of repeat the process, not entirely, but you repeat the process and you treat them as a different population. Um, And so you kind of do that again. We do use transfer learning, which is kind of like not, not especially fancy AI, but it is a way of kind of cutting the next training, the the size of the next training data set you need to uh, train your new model. But it does mean going out and repeating. I think if you just say, oh, you know, it's uh, everybody who speaks English is the same. So yeah. not true. <laughs> not true at all, especially if they're from Florida. I um, <laughs> I got family down there. I think I can say that. Uh, I think Scotland is probably worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody's got one. Uh, so <laughs> we're we're coming in the home stretch. We started, to, and I always love to, like I say, kind of finish on a on a positive and optimistic note before I go down that path. Alan, did I uh, cover a lot of the stuff from our brainstorm? Did I miss anything? Was there anything you wanted to jump on and, and, and get to that I did that I missed before we do? No, being polite, I think, uh, yeah. I think we uh, we hit all the points. I think we did as well. Um, all right. So before we wrap things up, let's do it. Let's be optimistic. Let's look ahead. You started to tell us a little bit about this and some of the things that beyond depression that you're very naturally finding your ways into, but uh, without, as I like to say, revealing uh, the 11 herbs and spices or pulling the curtain too far back, like what, what is the, the, the big goal? What's the ultimate uh, end game here? You guys, you're, you're already making inroads. You're starting to close those gaps five, 10 years down. What, what are you hoping for? What's, what, what are you working towards? Tell us what you can about the future for Themia. Yeah. I mean, like the, the big vision is essentially that we can, or other people like us can become the gold standard for assessing mm-hmm. all kinds of mental health conditions, not just depression, but all cognitive disorders from mood disorders to neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD, autism, to neurodegenerative like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. It it seems natural that that's how you should go. But even beyond that, a very ambitious goal that we're starting to make inroads into is actually based on what we find from the symptoms, being able to accurately predict 
what treatment different people will respond the best to due to those patterns that we find. Mm -hmm. And that's something we're training the models to do. We are still like a few years away from it, but we're going down that pathway. So hopefully not just assessing, but also shrinking from 10 years to get the right treatment for depression. Maybe we can get it within a couple, two, three weeks. That would be fantastic. That would be that would be very fantastic. That would, is there is and I hate to use such a, a, a crummy example to get myself over to this question, but I think of like when I go to like an Amazon website and I have to return a package. And again, I hate that this is the example I have to use, but here just bear with me. And I don't, I very clearly don't need to talk to a person right away. They have a system in place that asks the questions they need to ask. Well, is it because it's broken or is it because it didn't show up or is it? And I answer that, and they go okay, it's broken. Well, did you break it or did it arrive? But like, it goes through the whole thing, right? And then if I get to the end of that and it goes, cool, you need to either speak to this person or your package is on the way. We're sending you a replacement kind of thing. That the experience is somewhat miserable, but um, <laughs> but I, I can see value in a very uh, pleasant experience where especially with the influx of people that need and are seeking out mental health, is there a not too distant future where there is a very helpful um, digital assistant or something that steps in before I even get to the, 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 the clinician or before I even get to the, the physician rather that says, hey, what's going on? Let's play some games. Let's figure some stuff out. Let's see where you're at. And then we'll figure out what the best path forward for you is. Is, is that something that, that could happen in the next couple of years or, or is it too complex? For, is, is The human brain is way more involved than a, a broken light bulb from Amazon. <laughs> like, is it possible? Yeah, I think it's, it's not so much to do with you know, whether it's possible. You can get the same patterns whether you're going through a clinician or you're going directly to the patient themselves without the clinician being involved. It's more a question on the ethics of how you do that. And mm, mm. there is, we've very, very specifically gone for secondary care so that we can get more labels, better data to train our models. But obviously it's a small kind of like, there is a small portion of the population that makes it to psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is in the next couple of years to expand to primary care so that actually we can start to, to pick up um, the problem sooner when people are going in, say, for diabetes checks, or I always use diabetes. I don't know why. It's always one of my one of my men, like physical health things. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you go for something else, you're actually being screened at the same time for mental health conditions. Hopefully, mm. within five years or so, we want to actually put this into the hand of the end user. But there are so many steps to get there so that we do it ethically. I think everybody tends to go, boom, let's go B2C because it's mental health and it's a massive market. Well, yeah, great. But if you yeah. want to be so informative as to treatments and stuff, then you need to do it slowly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, what's your, um, what's your, you always have a great vision for the future. Talk to me about uh, what, what do you see in the next 10 years? Stuff like this, this kind of technology, what's the biggest impact you foresee? I mean, you hope to see. Amelia said it, which was, you know, the idea of being able to take measures and predict treatment efficacy is huge. Um, and I agree, it needs to be research-driven. We're also starting from a research-driven approach and empowering, hopefully, companies like Athemia to do that um, research as well. Uh, but yeah, I would go even further, which is to say, you know, at the end of the day, um, these diagnostic categories are useful because they capture things that are metrics of well-being, right? They're like 
where are we feeling good from day to day? Are we sleeping well? Like all these things. But we we could in principle take these sort of objective proxies of well-being and subjective measures and have this kind of multi-dimensional space as an output of, that we want to track. And then as an input, have all of the different measures that we have available, uh, whether it's from somebody playing a game or during a clinical interview or, you know, talking to a digital assistant, like you were saying, and say, let's figure out what's going to help you. (laughs) You (laughs) I think is the future rather than um, creating all of these different kind of categories and discretizations and, um, and uh, you you know, at the end of the day, you want to know like, okay, if I, if I take this, chemical or if I go into therapy or um, if I engage in some new practice like meditation or if I go out into nature, you know, how is this going to affect my well-being and mental health is included in in well-being and having that broader, more holistic view, I think is going to be really helpful, especially at a moment where where we're seeing people in the mental health system get diagnosed with tons of different things, taking tons of different drugs. Right. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and that's, it's so contrary to how you would think about it. If you were thinking of all of these well-being metrics as related and saying, okay, one drug, uh, can, uh, for somebody who's depressed and also shows symptoms, some symptoms of anxiety, there's something there for you. It's not about taking anxiety drugs and depression drugs. Like, that's just the craziest idea that yeah. we've adopted. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, and, and so thinking about all of these things as interrelated and holistic and that can be optimized together. I think, um, I think there's a way that in 10 years, the mental health system could look completely different if we're able to adopt that effectively. Amazing. Um, well, uh, Amelia, I'm truly bummed to have to wrap this up, uh, but I got to let you go. And I, I want to thank you so much for, for making time to chat with Alan and myself today. Uh, I can't say it enough. Thank you. Seriously. We really appreciate you hanging out. So thank you. It's I been great. That. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. Absolutely. Everybody out there, make sure you head over. Now, ad- admittedly, it's it's an outdated website, themia.ai. We've been warned that the team has grown. So just keep that in mind when you head over there. But there's still some really great information and a great way to reach out if you want some more from Amelia and, and her, her growing team. That's T-H-Y-M-I-A dot A-I. Uh, oh, and that's the other thing, too. It was fun, Amelia, to have you on, to have a fellow dot A-I on the show. Uh, it's a small club, but it's nice to meet a fellow members. <laughs> Very nice. Um, Alan, uh, outstanding as always. And I know sometimes I give you a hard time, but honestly, I love doing this with you. And I told Amelia, I'm grateful for the work she's doing. I'm grateful for the work you're doing, dude. I really am for both of you guys. I think the, the two of you and the, and the kind of stuff you are doing is setting us up for that future that you envision. And, uh, and we're all going to be the better for it. So I know it feels like you're, you're trying your best, but it, it's outstanding. So thanks to both of you, actually, mm-hmm. on behalf of all of us, regular people. Uh, we appreciate what all you really smart, driven people are doing. Uh, and also to that end, thank you, Alan, for uh, hosting another episode with me. Thank you. Nice thank to have you. you. Um, hey, speaking of giving us time, who would we be not to acknowledge you, our audience, for doing exactly that? Thank you, every one of you, for continuing to listen, watch, share, the Feelings Lab, all that stuff. Um, you know, we are one show in a sea of billions. So every time one of you hits play, it's a big victory. And uh, we appreciate it. We really do. So much so that if you happen to have a question or a thought worth sharing, we want to hear it. Uh, or read it, whatever. You can email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. That's T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at hume, H-U-M-E dot 
AI. And if it's a good question, then you best believe I'll find a reason to read it on the air. That's going to do it. Farewell for now from all of us at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. And please stay safe out there. <laughs>